A contemporary of mine in the Treasury suggested that I should appear today in uh, a cardigan uh, with roll-your-own-tobacco-in-a-pocket and perhaps in shorts and knee-high socks. Um, I'm not, as you can see, followed that sartorial advice, and I don't think my family would have uh, allowed it. But as I prepared for today, I was uh, reminded about a number of people associated with public administration who played an important part in my life uh, and in public administration in New Zealand. And first I want to acknowledge Dr. Robin Williams, uh, who is here with us today. Thank you for coming, Robin. It's very nice to, to see you. Dr. Williams, as many of you will know, was chair of the State Services Commission between 1976 and 1981, following an earlier career as a commissioner and as a, a distinguished science and university person. And Robin, as we were saying, has maintained that interest by attending most uh, sessions of most organisations around Wellington in the last few years. It's always delightful to see you, Robin. Thank you. I want to mention, too, to two other people who contributed greatly to my understanding and to that of many others, uh, and who were both prominent members of the Institute of, Institute of Public Administration. First, Professor K.J. Ken Scott, a member of the first DPA course at Victoria University in 1940, um, a scholar and a teacher of great distinction, president of the Institute, taken from us far too early, sadly, just after he'd been appointed as a member of the McCarthy Commission in 1961, a commission I want to talk about a bit later today. And secondly, Professor John Roberts, who will be known to many of you, Professor of Public Administration at Victoria from the 60s to the 80s, a scholar, a teacher, and a communicator of the highest order. I should also say at the outset that I have not tried too hard to keep some of my personal judgments and opinions out of the seminar, but I'm aware as I look round that there are many uh, perspectives from which one can view the old public service, or as Lean Cook called it the other day, the nation-building public service, with apologies to Brian Easton. And I see, as I say, people in the audience who will not share all my views, I'm quite sure, and I hope there's time at the end of the paper for an exchange of views. In the zeal of the reforms of the 80s, there was sometimes a revisionist interpretation that said there was no public service before 1988, and if there was, it was so bad that we don't want to know about it. If that view remains, I do seek to apply a corrective. There was a public service, there were some remarkable public servants, and there were some remarkable achievements. To take literally a concrete example, that of the Public Works Department, latterly the Ministry of Works, we can simply adapt the tribute to Christopher Wren. If you seek their monument, look around you. Incidentally, it's a pity that we do not have a history of the Ministry of Works in its later years, but I should acknowledge the excellent histories of a great number of government departments that we do have, and which have been of great interest to me today. There was my namesake, John E., on the Department of Labour, Malcolm McKinnon on the Treasury, Alan Henderson on the State Services Commission, all of which I've drawn on for today. I should say at the outset that I have no illusions about a golden age of public administration in New Zealand. The message from any history is that institutions adapt to the challenges posed by the circumstances of the time, Either they adapt in an evolutionary manner, or from time to time there's a convergence of influences that ushers in a period of radical change. 
My brief is to recall the public service of that long period between, say, 1920 and the State Sector Act of 1988. I propose to do that by highlighting the major events over that period. New Zealand over those years responded to the challenges of two world wars, the Great Depression, and a series of balance of payments crises, and of course waves of societal change. Nonetheless, the pillars of the statutory arrangements that governed the public service remained largely unchanged. Some, of course, may say that that was the problem. But having moved fairly lightly over the history, I then propose to look more closely at the characteristics of the public service in the 1960s and 1970s, the period after the McCarthy Royal Commission and the State Services Act of 1962. The two principles on which I will focus, central to the 1912 Act, are those of continuity, underpinned by the merit-based career service, and unity, the unified public service employed by the Public Service Commission. I could perhaps mention at this point that a colleague of mine in my early days as a cadet and accounts clerk in the long-gone Department of Island Territories was a chap called Bob Jones now Sir Robert Jones. In Jones on Property, written back in 1977, Bob speaks of his public service experience, not with enthusiasm. And I quote, a dreary little office with dreary little people. <laughs> My heart fell when I read it. His particular scorn is directed at the permanent head, head down and appropriately grim and gray. The goal of becoming a permanent head was not for Bob, and he left the public service for his very successful entrepreneurial career. I stayed and had no regrets. Incidentally, as a 16-year-old Class 6 cadet with UE, I started on a salary of £295 per annum. My controlling officers aspired to Class 3 and £1,000 a year, and from memory the permanent head got £2,000 per annum. I should perhaps at this point cite an English academic who spent some time at Victoria during the 1950s, Peter Campbell. Writing in 1956, he said, one of the traditions of New Zealand government is that the civil service should be widely regarded with fear, contempt and dislike as a host of unproductive, socialistic, power-hungry bureaucrats. I must say, I thought I heard echoes of this in the last couple of days. <laughs> Uh, many New Zealanders find pleasure in vilifying the public service and in striking at it, even when they themselves benefit directly from its work. Now that I think goes a bit too far, but I have to say that there were times at a golf club when I felt that I was being held responsible for all the alleged deficiencies of every government agency. This is perhaps the time to make the point that the old public service did not seek to model itself on the world of business. Business was different. It was right for the public service to be business-like, but it was not business. The public service might borrow techniques and methods from business, and we did, but the corporate model was not the point of aspiration or of comparability in measuring outcomes, or indeed of comparability of earnings in professions at the top of or, or at the top of business. The old public service was secure in building on its own principles and its constitutional role. If I had to recommend an eloquent exposition of this case, I would commend to you the administrative vocation by Robert Parker, 
a doyen of the discipline of public administration in New Zealand and Australia. Before I say something about the history, let me mention two issues that I have no time to talk about, but which are important and should be noted. The first is the change of culture initiated by the Ombudsman Act of 1962 and the Official Information Act of 1982. Both made incursions into the Westminster Whitehall structure that we have lived with since 1912. They've had a major influence on the way the services operate. The second is the impact of what I will loosely call computerisation. The first computer on government books was in the Treasury in 1961 for paying the public service. Statistics began computerising trade statistics in 1962, and the replacement of clerical, sometimes machine-assisted procedures for processing transactions has changed immeasurably the nature of the public services business in ways well known to you in the half century since. As I heard the other day, the courts were being dragged into the digital age. And I must say, just listening to the radio in the last few days, the tension between access and transparency on the one hand and security on the other uh, remains a major issue. And so to a little history. First to go back to where John E. left off last week. What were those pillars of the 1912 legislation that were to remain in place for 75 years? After 1912, the public service, following well behind the United Kingdom, the Australian States and the United States, was an institution that was politically neutral, merit-based, a lifetime career from cadet to superannuated public servant, and I would add anonymous. It was a unified service controlled by the Public Service Commission, not as the Hunt Commission recommended a board of three, two business people and a public servant. The sole commissioner was responsible to Parliament, not a minister, although the commissioner was of course dependent on the relationship with the government of the day to discharge his mandate to ensure efficiency and economy. The public service was also a classified service, five occupational divisions in a vertical scale spanning eight grades in the clerical class. The highly personal and inconsistent pay arrangements, individual for each department from the era of patronage about which John E. talked about last week, were made uniform. They were bureaucratised in the sense that he spoke about. I can only highlight some of the key points during the interwar years and these are dealt with in more detail in my longer paper. At the end of World War I, the New Zealand economy was in reasonably good shape, but after a sharp fall in the terms of trade in 1921, uh, improved throughout the decade of the 20s. Nonetheless, Alan Henderson, so far as the public service is concerned, is, I think, justified in labelling the entire period from 1920 to 1935 as the era of retrenchment. The main focus was on reducing the cost of public service salary and wages through pay cuts from 7 to 10 per cent from January 1922 and by weakening the assumed linkage between the cost of living and public sector pay. What kind of a public service are we talking about in the 1920s? First, its size. In 1920, there were just under 8,500 public servants, including 1,500 temporaries from wartime. Secondly, it was a male public service. The women appointed as temporaries during the war were quickly dispensed with, and those who remained were subject to severe discrimination. Such prejudices were, if anything, reinforced by the Depression. And again, I quote from Alan Henderson, the situation of women changed very little throughout the 1920s and 30s. 
nor was there any rapid change, as one might perhaps have expected looking back, after Labour came to office. It was also a white public service. I don't have the figures identifying the number of Māori staff, but one may presume that the Department of Native Affairs would employ a greater number of Māori than other agencies. But even after a significant increase in staff in the mid-1930s, the total was only 224, of whom 83 were temporary. As an aside, I could perhaps mention that religion was sometimes, without much evidence, I think, thought to be a factor in public service appointment back in the 1920s. Massey's association with the Protestant Political Association was sometimes claimed to have influenced the failure to appoint a Roman Catholic to a senior position. Conversely, Roman Catholics were rumoured to have been overrepresented in one or two departments up until the 1960s. The impact of the Depression from 1929 to 1934, the sugar bag years as Tony Simpson called them, on New Zealand on the public service was substantial. In the fall of export prices, the devaluation of the pound, the decline in GDP and unemployment at 12% in 1933. Fiscal retrenchment was again the policy response. The Finance Act of 1931 reduced all state employees' salaries and wages by 10%, effective from 1 April. Further graduated pay reductions from 5% at the lower levels to 12.5% for senior officers took place on 1 April 1932. These financial constraints had a serious impact on the staffing of the public service for many years to come. Only two cadets were appointed in 1931 and none in 1932. The economy was already in recovery when the Forbes-Coates government suffered a resounding defeat in November 1935. The new Labour government, as most of you will know, set out on a programme of increased state activism. Most dramatically, there was an expansion of public works activity, notably in roading, hydroelectric generation and state housing. In 1938, the foundation of the modern welfare state was put in place with the Social Security Act. The most obvious impact on the public service was on its size. From 10,560 at 31st of March 1936, staff numbers grew to 20,780 by 31 March 1940, the 100% growth. 40% were temporaries. Let me make a point or two about the continuity of the system. Throughout the 20s and 30s, the fundamentals of the 1912 Act remained in place. From time to time, most notably on Labour's assumption of office in 1935, there were suggestions that commissioner control should be replaced by a return to political control. Labour, like administrations to come, is a certain suspicion of senior officers who had served their opponents. But these went nowhere. A dominant characteristic of the New Zealand public service after 1912 was an egalitarian institution. And I think the democratic nature of the public service from 1912 is summed up by Lester Webb writing in 1940. Every cadet who enters the service does so in the knowledge that there are no barriers to his advancement to the highest positions, that his capacities will be impartially assessed, that his right of appeal against decisions affecting his status and salary is carefully safeguarded, and that he will be adequately pensioned on his retirement. It was, however, becoming clear by the latter part of the 1930s that something more than an egalitarian public service was required. As Ray Palashik in 1958 observed, 
Traditionally, the New Zealand Public Service carried out cabinet and ministerial policy. It did not concern itself with research, planning or suggesting to ministers major courses of action. In a small service engaged mainly on routine work, ministers could make all important decisions and many minor ones as well. They could do their own thinking and planning and the service was recruited and staffed on that basis. Suddenly, in the 1930s, ministers were confronted with new problems more complex and complicated than those that they had encountered in the past. And I'm, in terms of time, I'm going to jump over World War II, but clearly it had a major impact on the public service, uh, as did the next few years of full employment. This was a time of difficulties in recruitment and retention in the public service. The role of the public service in this system was to work with ministers to manage a growing economy and the welfare state that by 1950 was a matter of bipartisan acceptance. And I want to return later to the relationship between ministers and public servants. I should turn now to the McCarthy Commission. In the late 1950s, the Institute of Public Administration began to put the case for a comprehensive review of the state services. The principal rationale was simply that the world had changed over the 50 years since the Hunt Commission of 1912 and that a review was timely. There was no great enthusiasm on the part of either the Nash or Holyoke governments or the Public Service Commission. But on 6 July 1961, the national government announced the formation of a royal commission chaired by High Court Judge Sir Thaddeus McCarthy. The McCarthy report was published in June 1962, and I quote from the preface to that report. It is appropriate to comment on the general condition of the state services in New Zealand. First, this country has been so well served for so long by loyal, incorruptible and politically neutral state servants that it may be inclined to assume that this is part of the nature of things. There are many parts of the world where it is not so, and New Zealanders would do well to reflect on their good fortune. The McCarthy Commission did not propose large changes. In essence, its approach was that for the state services to adapt to the changing modern world was a continuous process. It asserted that the government had to accept a much more effective responsibility for the condition of the state services that it had in the past, and that the principal vehicle for achieving the continuous process of change was the transformation of the Public Service Commission into a much stronger body, uh, and they recommended a single commissioner, a State Services Commissioner, also with some responsibility for the railways and post office, as well as the Public Service. The Royal Commission also made recommendations about the appointment of permanent heads and about pay fixing, and discussed a number of machinery of government changes that were on the table, such as the establishment of the Ministry of Defence from separate departments and so on. The State Services Act 1962 was to govern public administration in New Zealand until 1988. The watered-down recommendations of the Royal Commission's report were a disappointment to McCarthy, and experience of the State Services Commission over the next 25 years was, in retrospect, below the expectations of those who sought, in the words of the Royal Commission, forceful and imaginative leadership, rather than a supplier of, state, of staff services. Much of the explanation for this state of affairs can be attributed to the preoccupation 
of the State Services Commission with pay and industrial issues, just as its predecessor, the Public Service Commission, had been throughout most of the post-war period. Top of the agenda for the new four-man commission headed by Alan Atkinson, the previous chair, were the achievement of two goals, the occupational classification of the public service and the establishment of machinery and procedures for pay research as the basis of state services-wide pay fixing. Both tasks were going to prove very difficult. And pay, pay research for many years was well described as intractable. Occupational classification was to take a decade. In essence, occupational classification was to transform the five divisions that had been inaugurated in 1913, general, clerical, professional, administrative, and a very small educational division, into a fine-tuned 137 occupational classes by 1974, of which 67 had fewer than 100 members. And I simply quote one or two of them. The Explosives Inspection Class, 32. The Field Advisory Officers High Datits, 8. Lighthouse Keeping, 14. Patent Examining, 28. By comparison, the Clerical Division had 15,000. In the Clerical Division, this, those in the Commission who are here will know was their problem for the, all those years. The principles behind state sector pay fixing were based since 1948 on fair relativity, later external comparability, and I quote, a level comparable with the current remuneration received by those doing broadly comparable work in outside employment, subject to enabling the service to recruit and retain an efficient staff, and allowing horizontal relativity within the state services, where there is no comparison with broadly comparable work in outside employment. And in those nice few phrases, I can see one or two people here, certainly Robin Williams, who spent much of their lifetimes over the 20-odd years from 1962 wrestling with what all those meant across the public service. The problems were not so much with the concepts, but with the mechanisms of establishing the facts that were necessary for such a system. The most wide-ranging instrument was the annual general adjustment that was measuring movement in private sector pay, but not actual pay rates. And it applied across the whole state services, a broad increase of 5, 10, sometimes 15%. In blunt terms, the consequences were anomalies among occupational rates and claims, and claims justified in some courses, cases of public sector pay leadership. Complicating matters still more was the existence of separate appeal tribunals for the various services. The other major factor I think that has to be mentioned about this preoccupation with pay fixing for 20 odd years is the key role of the employee organisations. The state unions acting individually or collectively as the combined state unions, CSU, had long had a part to play in the development of the state services. But it was the, the generation of depression juniors, and notably one name sticks out to me with Jack Lewin, who will be familiar to many of you, I suspect, later the government statistician and the Secretary of Trade and Industry, but in the 1940s, a very strong and militant leader of the PSA. The combined state unions demonstrated their negotiating strength in pay-fixing matters throughout the post-war period until 1988. And apart from Jack Lewin, it was led by some powerful figures, Dan Long, 
Ivan Reddish from the Post Office Association, Colin Clark, Barry Tucker, Colin Hicks, are people that I remember well. Two characteristics of the apparently never-ending negotiations stand out. First, it was the command that the combined state unions had over vulnerable state activities. Some that come quickly to mind are the mental hospitals, which were represented by the PSA, not by the Nurses Association, the inter-island ferries, threats to strike over the school holidays, remote New Zealand electricity department locations, even the post office. And some of you may remember Brian Edwards resolving an industrial dispute on television in 1970. The second factor was successive governments' unwillingness, no doubt reflecting their judgment about the public's attitudes, that when the chips were down to confront the state unions. And certainly most recently in my own experience with junior doctors and nurses in 1985-86. It's important to note, however, that throughout this period uh, there was, was one of uh, industrial militancy, of um, double-digit inflation, of pay rises in the private sector as well as the public sector of over 20%, sometimes over 30%, uh, and um, a continual range of intervention by the state in pay pauses, pay freezes, stabilisation of remuneration acts, in all of which the public service was caught up. I want to now move quickly to the 70s. The 70s were a de decade of volatility. The economic story was dominated by the impact of the oil shocks of 1973-74 and 1979. At the time of the first crisis, there was a fall in the terms of trade of 43% in little more than a year. I have to be honest and admit they fell from a very high rate, but the fall of 43% is not something which you deal with lightly. And I get somewhat uh, almost nostalgic when I hear that we're now facing the greatest economic crisis we've ever faced. Um, society, too, was under stress. The golden weather of the 50s and 60s was over. Family issues were matters of debate, the domestic purposes benefit, abortion, homosexuality. In Colin James' interpretation, very broadly, the Vietnam generation was becoming an engine of change. International waves of feminism, Indigenous rights and environmentalism were influencing New Zealand. The public service could not remain isolated from these changes. And all that I have time to say here is that if you had departmental staff responsibilities, as I did during those years, you become very conscious that the firm ground in which the 1912 system had functioned for 40 years was being shaken. And now I'd like to spend a few minutes with some reflections. Leslie Lipson in 1949 offered this perceptive observation. With the political parties, the modern civil service has struck a mutually beneficial bargain. By guaranteeing to public servants a life's career and a pension, parties have forsworn the use of patronage and have guaranteed to the state employees their tenure of their jobs. In return, the parties expect, and the public servants owe, equal loyalty to any government which the people have placed in office. That, I think, fairly represents the situation as I experienced until the 1980s. And that's not to ignore, as I mentioned earlier, the uneasiness that almost without exception marked the early months of a new government assuming office 
uh, after the opposition had occupied the Treasury benches for a decade. But more important is the way in which, in my recollection, but others may disagree, the two arms of the executive government, the political and the administrative, by and large worked in harmony, a tribute perhaps of the colonial Sir Humphreys of those years. The criticism most often levelled at the old public service was that it was not capable of initiating and implementing that magic word reform, whether in terms of policy or in modernising the public service. And I was quite surprised at the number of quotations I was able to assemble from commentators over these years making this point, but perhaps the strongest is John Roberts writing in 1977. New Zealand has an honest, intelligent and public-spirited bureaucracy that is incapable of major reform. Since the first Labour government, the absence of policy demands has produced an inward-looking, stable, uncreative leadership, suspicious of political action and resistant to political management. My contemporaries would no doubt have a range of views on that judgment, that the old public service was inward-looking, stable and uncreative. My own view is that the leadership of the public service in those years was well aware of the challenges facing New Zealand from the 60s onwards. The vulnerability of the economy and the emerging tensions in society were certainly not outside the range of leading public servants. In the field of economic management, there was a worldview shared by a group of people for whom I have the highest respect. Henry Lang and Noel Luff in the Treasury, Jim Moriarty in trade and industry, Frank Holmes at the Monetary and Economic Council in Victoria, and the Planning Council, John Roberts himself at Victoria, Laurie Cameron in the business world and many others. They shared a number of propositions about public policy. First, that politicians were inevitably preoccupied with the short term emphasised by the three-year parliamentary term, that key decisions necessary for welfare in the long term would only be taken when the public was informed and persuaded that they were necessary, that the public service as a repository of knowledge and expertise was constrained, and rightly so, by the Westminster conventions from too boldly entering the public domain, that the task of informing the public would need to be undertaken by bodies formed by that, for that purpose, the Monetary and Economic Council from 1961, the National Development Conference from 1968, the Planning Council from 1976, and the Institute of Policy Studies from 1982. That the dominance of the principal interest groups in economic management at least required the nurturing of relationships between the public service and private sector leaders. That policy formation should take the long view and be cross-disciplinary. Now, I'm well aware of the criticism about the claimed ineffectual role played by bodies such as the Planning Council, but I can also say that there are many occasions on which the public service and the advisory bodies proposed courses of action to the government of the day, but these were rejected. Probably that which is foremost in my mind is the recommendation in 1979 by four permanent heads, Treasury, the Prime Minister's Department, Trade and Industry, and the Governor of the Reserve Bank, of a package of measures designed to return New Zealand to a path of economic growth. Central to the programme put forward was a strategy that would open the, the economy to international competition. The, project, the pack, package was 
rejected abruptly, I suppose is the word, by the Minister of Finance, who also happened to be the Prime Minister, Sir Robert Muldoon. And I firmly believe that if that change of direction had been adopted, much of the disruption that came in the revolution of the 1980s would have been avoided. In respect of reform of the public service, by the end of the 70s, there was a mounting tide of criticism, notably of departmental relations with the public, issues of responsiveness, and also the organisation and performance of the state-owned trading enterprises. But there were no far-reaching plans for reform. In a word, the key was management. And I just want to say, because I've leapt over quite a number of paragraphs, that right from the 1940s, when the Public Service Act of 1946 appointed a three-man commission, there was a strong focus on improving the management of the public service. Uh, notable in it was uh, Sir Jack Hun, uh, and the mantra of the 1940s was O&M, Organisation and Management, cutting the red tape. And that persisted throughout this period, and I wouldn't like it to be thought that there was no concern about that. And certainly during Dr Williams and uh, Dr Probine's time at the, Public, at the State Services Commission, there was a very, very strong emphasis on improving efficiency and economy. But there were no major packages of reform in the sense of what happened in the 1980s. Twenty years after the McCarthy Commission, despite the commitment of successive chairs of the State Services Commission, the picture was much the same as had been criticised by McCarthy. Pay fixing and occupational classification occupied a disproportionate amount of time and energy. By the 80s, there was a degree of impatience in departments, particularly the large agencies delivering services. The delays and layers of paperwork required by Commission control were becoming increasingly irksome. So the welcome by senior public servants of the devolution of powers under the State Sector Act was hardly surprising. But having been critical of the Commission, more accurately of the system, I now want to say something positive. In various capacities as a junior and senior public servant, I worked at close quarters with excessive commissions particularly in the late 70s. I had great respect for them all, Ian Lithgow, Robin Williams, Merv Proban and Don Hun. That respect was motivated by the personal qualities of integrity and concern for the public interest that they demonstrated, but also because of the role they played in that grey area between the politicians and the public service. To some extent they were a buffer, interpreting the ways of the public service to our political masters and on the other hand, mediating when relationships between ministers and permanent heads became, as they did from time to time, a little strained. They were also a point of refuge when issues arose that tested the conventions. For example, in my own case, when I asked the Commissioner of Police to conduct an investigation in two ministerial offices. But above all, the State Services Commission was the embodiment of the unity of the public service. We were all employees of the Commission, our careers were ultimately in their hands, and there was a sense of what, for want of a better word, I will call duty, which I prefer to loyalty, across the public service, at least in the senior ranks. That duty was owed to the Crown, represented for the time being by the government of the day. That, of course, is not to pretend that the agencies of the government advanced on a perfectly orchestrated and coordinated front on every political issue. 
or in delivering services. Departments had their own histories, their own individualistic leaders, and it can be persuasively argued in some cases their own policies. The important point for today is, however, that the creative conflict among departments was translated into coherent policies requiring at times resolution by ministers. In my own experience, the policy process was greatly assisted by the fact that in a career service, officers grew up through the system. People worked together in their early days of drafting papers to, in some cases at least, sitting at the officials committee taking responsibility for the advice sent to ministers. I now want to say something about the relationship between ministers and the public servants in the old public service. An Australian commentator, Jenny Stewart, writing some years ago, I thought expressed well what she called the perennial question. Too much responsiveness implies a public service that has become compliant to the point of subordinating its professional integrity to the political needs of ministers. Too little implies a public service that ignores its duty to serve ministers in favour of pursuing its own interests. What was the New Zealand situation? It's changed over the years. In very broad terms, my reading is that Palaszczuk is right in his summing up of the situation in the years between 1912 and the 30s. And I think I've quoted this, but I'll repeat it. Traditionally, the New Zealand Public Service carried out cabinet ministerial policy. It did not concern itself much with research planning or suggesting to ministers major courses of action. In a small service engaged mainly on routine work, ministers could make all the important decisions, and many minor ones as well. In the post-war years, a number of senior officials, in partnership with Peter Fraser and Walter Nash, negotiated their way through the new world of full employment in the welfare state. And I think it's worth noting, and it's a, an area which I think is worthy of a lot more attention, that the government of New Zealand during wartime and immediately afterwards was really run by two ministers, Peter Fraser and Walter Nash, surrounded by a group of young, very bright public servants, people like Bernard Ashwin, uh, Alistair McIntosh in the Prime Minister's Department, Beebe in the Education, Entrican in the Forest Service, nearly all of whom were appointed in their late 30s or early 40s. This somehow gives the lie to the fact that the only appointments to senior jobs in the old public service were made just before you were superannuated. Um, and by the 60s, ministers and senior officials were in a relationship which Tom Shand, a minister in the Holyoke government, described in these terms. The ideal relationship of minister and departmental head is not unlike that of Siamese twins who move, who stand or fall together. The one looks out principally upon the world at large, the other looks back upon the department, which together they must lead. This was an age of almost mythical partnerships between, for example, Ralph Hannon as Minister of Justice and Dr John Robson, his secretary, who together made such a large contribution towards the liberalisation of our judicial system. By the 60s, in a broad generalisation, it could be argued that in the long reign of the Holyoke Marshall National Governments, policy initiatives tended to come from the public service. We've moved a long way from the kind of uh, situation that Palaszczuk was describing for the 30s. Ministers exercised their political judgment and skills in telling officials what could not or would not be done rather than what would be done. In the old public service, for their part, ministers had an expectation that permanent heads would run their departments in such a way 
that ministers were not called to account in Parliament or the press. In several years of responsibility for staff in the Treasury in the 1970s with Robert Muldoon as Minister, and under four Ministers of Health in the first half of the 80s, only once did a Minister ever comment to me about a departmental appointment. There was an implied trust in the permanent head to manage the department. There was no question of what I've read recently in a very interesting paper by De Francesco and Appel in Bill Ryan's recent book, the managerial orientation of ministers' roles. In such a culture, what are the qualities required of top public servants? The 1962 Royal Commission had talked of experience, judgment, and departmental knowledge. To this, I suggest, should be added a safe pair of hands and political nous. This, in retrospect, falls far short of the heroic business leadership model that seemed to accompany the role of chief executives as prescribed in the 1988 Act. But if I've left you an impression that the top of the old public service of a rank of bland, grim grey and Bob Jones language figures, I would have to say that people like Ashwin, Beebe, Entrican in the 40s and 50s, Henry Lang, Jack Lewin, Bill Such, Bernard Galvin and many others were far from retiring personalities in the 60s and 70s. I now want to close uh, to return to the themes that I signalled at the outset. The unified career public service born of the 1912 Act had much to offer. It was underpinned by the role of the Public Service Commission and the State Service Commission and the perception of a duty to the Crown shared with loyalty to the individual department. For all that was gained by the decentralisation of the employer role to chief executives in 1988, I believe that some attention could now usefully be devoted to actively promoting that sense of collective ownership. Secondly, the practical significance of institutional memory embedded in the old public service cannot be overstated. The continuity of a department that respects and carries forward the knowledge of which it is a singular repository is an essential attribute of an effective public service. In particular, I want to pay a tribute to the generations of those who I've come to call the Lampton Key Warriors, the middle-level and long-serving public servants who know their legislation backwards, who are familiar with the context of decisions taken in the past, and who know their way around the people who matter within their particular sector. To conclude, if asked to sum up the 75 years of the old public service, I would say that in the changing context of New Zealand throughout those decades, the public service served New Zealand well. Throughout that time, the 1912 principles underpinned the service, unified, apolitical, career and anonymous. By the 70s, in the face of the challenge of stagflation and a more turbulent society, there was increasingly widespread dissatisfaction with aspects of government. It seems to me, looking back, that that was principally in three areas. First, a concern with the size and performance of the trading enterprises. Second, discomfort with the state pay-fixing system. And thirdly, the unhappiness of an increasingly diverse community with the performance of those agencies that delivered services. If reform was in the air in the 1970s, why did it require a revolution to bring it about? Was it a risk-averse attitude of the public service leadership? 
or was it a lack of political will or even interest until provoked by crises that could not be ignored? But these are questions I will leave to Jonathan for next week. <laughs> Thank you very much.